So this is the research, tried and true. It shows that programmatic companies outperform peers more than ever. Organic companies underperform peers more than ever. And by the way, organic is also the riskiest approach. So this gift of confidence that m and creates value and has created even more value over the last couple of years during COVID. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Jeff Rudnicki, a senior partner based in Boston and leader in our M&A practice, speaking about his team's latest research on programmatic M&A. In today's episode, we'll hear more from Jeff about how a programmatic approach to M&A can also help build resilience through turbulent times. Joining Jeff are McKinsey partners and M&A leaders, Tobias Lundberg and Patrick McGurdy. They are also joined by Joanna Stone-Herman. She's a partner at the M&A advisory firm, Oakland's De Silva and Phillips, where she focuses on the technology, media, and telecom industries. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Wonderful to be here. So Jeff, let's start with you. Can you talk us through the origin of McKinsey's research into the value created by different approaches to M&A? Thanks, Sean, and thanks, everybody. So since 1999, for 24 years, we've looked at how M&A creates value to address the often incorrect or always incorrect statement that 70% of deals fail, despite the fact that trillions of dollars are deployed annually on M&A. We knew this just wasn't true, and we set out to prove it. And then as COVID began, we asked, how does M&A differ in periods of downturns or in periods of uncertainty? And so what the research we're going to be sharing today reflects the last few years of the COVID period. We look at the top 2,000 companies. We call these the Global 2,000. These are the top 2,000 public companies across the world. And we divide them into four different M&A categories. The first, which I've already mentioned, is programmatic M&A. These are companies that are doing a number of deals greater than two per year over 10 years, and they've acquired a, a meaningful amount of market cap via acquisition. The next is selective. These are employing a similar strategy around small and mid-sized deals, but not doing it with quite the same frequency, fewer than two per, per year over the 10-year period. A large deal company is a company that does at least one large deal defined as buying something that's 30% or more of your own market cap. And organic companies are effectively not doing M&A. So this research for the fifth time, because we do this every uh, two to three years. So every time we've done it, it has consistently shown that programmatic M&A, companies that are doing a large number of small and mid-sized deals, have the highest performance versus their peers. Thanks, Jeff. And, and what is this year's update on the research show? What the research shows this year is that programmatic performance continues to outperform and perform even better than before. So programmatic companies on average outperform their peer set by 2.3% annually versus peers, and that their standard deviation of performance is the smallest. To contrast this, organic companies underperform their peers annually by on average 1.6% just to dimensionalize this, if your sector grew 5% over a 10-year period, a programmatic company would on average grow, ha have its share price uh, at 7.3%, and an organic company would have a share price performance of 3.4%. 
you compound this over 10 years, a programmatic company is going to have more than a 50% higher share price at the end of that period. If you then look at selective and large deal, you see similar results. And what this says is that on average, those two areas are about a coin flip. Now, one thing I'll note on large deal is that large deal used to be quite negative. And by our, uh, our research suggests this is where the 70% comes from is there was a period where more large deals than average destroyed value. No longer the case that the, the, these are more or less the coin flip. And, and maybe the punchline is the best way to make a large deal less risky is to augment it or complement it with programmatic M&A. So large deal plus programmatic companies outperform peers. So this is the research tried and true. It shows that programmatic companies outperform peers more than ever. Organic companies underperform peers more than ever. And by the way, as you can see, organic is also the riskiest approach. So this gives us confidence that M&A creates value and has created even more value over the last couple of years during COVID. So that's, that's really clear regarding acquisitions. Was wondering if the same holds true for divestitures. Do companies practicing these four different types of M&A approaches also pursue different divestiture strategies? So look, the punchline is you can see that the companies that are programmatically divesting non-core assets also do better. Again, less standard deviation in terms of performance versus their peers. As we said, we dove into large deal performance and how do you win the coin flip more often than uh, 50%. And we, we said sort of augmenting with programmatic M&A, the, the companies that are also sort of buying those large deal companies, making large deals and using that as a catalyst to not only sell what they just acquired that was not core, but also as a catalyst to divest what they previously maintained, but is no longer core do better. So, you know, this is a great, those large deals are a great opportunity to sort of set your go forward portfolio, um, in, in, you know, that's most strategic. Now, the the big caveat, I'll, I'll have two big caveats on this. Divestiture data is a little messier and a little less meaningful. And the reason we say that is if a company makes an acquisition, there's a real strategic intent. I wanted to buy this company. When a company makes a divestiture, there's all sorts of reasons. They're often, you know, ideally, it's, again, the same strategic, purposeful, this doesn't feel core. But a lot of times it reflects a company that has effectively harvested or killed an asset to its absolute breaking point or has a regulatory divestiture in order to secure an acquisition. So the data is a little bit messier. It's a little bit less in, in purposeful than an acquisition. So that's one caveat, but programmatic active portfolio managers perform better with less deviation. And maybe I could jump in here just from a sort of practitioner side, because when I ran Corp Dev for large companies like LexisNexis and Thompson Financial Corporate Group, you have to do divestitures. And what is interesting to me is that when a PE firm sells a company, everybody celebrates, but there's often this sense in the corporate environment that, oh, this was a failure. And I think that needs to change if you're going to have a successful programmatic strategy of, of M&A, because you really need to, just like if you're doing R&D, you need to make a lot of bets. And sometimes those bets may not work out exactly as you thought, but good things may still come from them. You've acquired some great managers and those people are going to stay on and really help lead your company. You got a great new product and you were able to in integrate that into something else. And then maybe as a whole, the business makes sense somewhere else once your strategy shifts a bit. But 
you need to be constantly refreshing and not afraid. And I find that unless company has a very strong programmatic M&A approach, as you've outlined, sometimes they can be afraid to do those divestitures. And they can actually be more problematic than, than anything you could do because you're holding onto an asset and you're investing resources into something that's not part of your core strategy. And it really makes sense to get rid of it. And, and hey, Joanna, just, just one comment on divestitures and more broadly as well. I mean, for us, it's no surprise that you know companies that are active in acquiring and companies in divesting perform better. I mean, we also see that more broadly in portfolio theory in the fact that companies that we work with, they need to have a certain refresh rate where you're almost always, you know, just not peanut buttering the same amount of resources to the same division over time, but you're really sort of moving resources, capex, R&D, and also the M&A funds to where there is growth and where there's potentially value creative. And that holds true also in an inorganic sense. So I think we fully recognize that. And, and for us, it was just nice to see uh, also that assertion sort of verified in the data also on the M&A side. And Patrick, one one question for you. One of the specific aspects your new research looked at was how M&A and divestitures through this COVID era economic cycle might compare to previous downturns. What did you find there? Thanks, Sean. What we wanted to do here was just to look back at the most recent economic downturns to see if there's anything that we could learn um, about what happens to M&A during those cycles. The first is that the percentage of deals that are non-cash or not all cash tends to tick up. And we, we think that this is an interesting trend um, because while there might not be conviction to get deals done, there are opportunities often to do partnerships, alliance, joint ventures, and get similar outcomes um, to what you might be thinking about in terms of acquisitions. The second observation we had is that the competition from private equity or financial sponsors also ticks down a bit. The third is that, uh, very interestingly, valuations tend to, in these previous cycles, decline as economic activity uh, has declined, meaning it lag, the valuation decline lags economic downturn. Again, something that might be different in this cycle. Another interesting thing uh, previous, uh, that observed in previous cycles is that the amount of leverage or debt that's used for acquisitions tended to increase through downturns. We think that might be different this time. Interesting. And Patrick, do the lower valuations we've seen recently contribute to an increase in M&A activity? So I think we all often get questions from clients about opportunities to pick off companies or targets that they might be interested in as valuations decrease? And does that somehow create a frothy market? And what this quick analysis shows is that, no, we don't think that that is true. So as valuations increase or despite valuations increase, M&A also increases during those times. And when those valuations crash or decrease, we also see a correlation to decreased M&A activity. So despite frothy markets, you see increased M&A activity. And despite, quote unquote, opportunities to maybe acquire assets when at lower valuations, we actually don't see that. Thanks. And Tobias, how should we look at the M&A research in light of what has been going on economically over the last year, post-pandemic? Excellent. So number one, typically we see in downturns that valuation levels, they kind of come 
on the on the back of a crisis, we start to see valuations drop. That's been very different this time around. You know, we had a bit of re-rating starting already back in December and January of last year. Um, and that's really came, you know, before we had sort of the big, the big inflation surge and interest rate surge. So what that means for this situation is unclear. I think one observation some of my clients have is at least that sort of it's harder to settle on a clear clearing price, given this disconnect that we basically have had at that shift. But that, that is one thing just to bear in mind, right, that's very different. A second one is, frankly, also the point around leverage. So we've been living in an environment for uh, the last 20 years of, of low inflation and of, of low interest rates, with few exceptions. And, and, and clearly now we are in a very different environment. And I mean, you know, with rising interest rates, I think what, what we, the conversation we're having with clients is, um, frankly, one of, well, how do I make my return on investment pay off in that context? Because effectively my cost of capital has gone up. You know, that means I need to be more ambitious on value capture, I need to be more creative on deals. I need to be more ambitious around sort of synergies and everything around that. But it also means that some type of very leveraged acquisitions will be more difficult to do. And, and we see that in particular in the, in the private equity space where, you know, they, some, of, some of those deals are not happening at the moment and they're being put off. Um, but I mean, but, but net net, I think, you know, it just means that we're going to see sort of the, things are being pushed out a bit in time. I think a third element is the element around minorities and partnerships. That we think is something that is true in prior crisis as it is today. Frankly, you need to be more, more creative around deal structuring, use of JVs, alliances, uh, different sort of corporate partnerships and minor, minority takeouts uh, as you try to get the deals done. And then number four is, what, is one reason for real optimism. So, you know, typically we talk about M&A sort of being a lag and following economic downturn and so on. That may be true, but I think the big difference we see here is that we now have some, on some accounts, some $2 trillion of, of dry powder sitting on the sidelines from, from financial sponsors as well as from corporates, you know, and they're all just waiting for the moment to, to start deploying, deploying that, and they, which they have to do, right, also to, to earn sort of some of the fees of fees around that. And so there is a hypothesis, at least, that we're going to see a bit of a catch-up effect of deals that ha- haven't been done that should be done, and also buyers that need to do deals coming towards the back end of this year. And so it's one of those you have to buckle up your seats, and it's going to be a, an interesting back, up, back end of the year, most likely. And is there any difference between sectors and what you're seeing here? I, th- I think then just sectors are impacted equally in, in downturns is not true, and that's clearly not true now either. Uh, clearly, the element of sort of, if you think about sort of energy, if you think if you think about sort of anything with a real ESG and green, and green component, uh, those are ones that will see bigger benefits, uh, technology on one hand. Uh, there is this broader sentiment around sort of, you know, to what extent are deals done that are, are global versus regional? And that's both from a... a um, supply chain perspective, but it's also, of course, from a geopolitical perspective, right? So there's a few more uh, parameters that need to be t- taken into account as we think about the combination of deals here. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll uh, jump in here if, if that's okay, Tathaya. So I am, you know, certainly in my role as investment banker, I am seeing a lot of what your observations are as well. And, and maybe if we just start this idea that not all sectors are impacted equally, I think it's important. And I think this is also a context for the for the discussions about valuation, to think about what happened during tech. Um, you know, I cover the TMT sector, and what we saw during the pandemic was that everybody had to have technology. The world became virtual, and technology sort of touched on every industry, whether it was courtrooms, commercial real estate, restaurants, they all needed to figure out ways to adapt to a virtual world. And that drove up activity and valuation to, you know, what might have been sort of artificially high levels. And so now you're seeing this sort of 
coming down across different industries and in, in in different ways. Um, but I think you know what you're still seeing is that um, there's this pent up demand, and we've had companies that we had to you know put on hold because we said you know what it's a little bit crazy right now. We know that you're a hot company. You're going to be in high demand. Let's wait and give it a little bit of time to see how things are settling out in, in your market. And then we're going to bring it to market. And what that's bringing is we're getting the buyers calling. When are you going to bring this company to market? When are you going to bring this company to market? So I think that's probably happening en masse. You know, that plus a lot of the dry powder people have to put to work. But I do think that we're also seeing sellers a little bit more willing to think about sharing in both the risk and the upside. Because there's a realization that you're not going to get the all all time high valuations of 2021, so it might be a good time to say, you know what, I'm going to take a little bit of this consideration or a lot of this consideration in future value, whether that's you know you know as small as just some sort of earnout that recognizes future value, all the way to a minority stakes so that I can recognize you know s- significant future value when valuations go back up. Got it. And Tobias, overall, in terms of thinking about downturns, have you seen any historical differences emerge, say, between sectors and regions? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and others feel free to chime in as well. I think the one thing we would say when we when we've done the study and you look at sort of what's different this time around versus the, versus the other times um, is sort of a consumer squeeze that basically touches on everyone. Right. So where if, if we look about think about the, the financial crisis in 08, 09, and you think about COVID, you think about double O. You know, different segments uh, were affected, you know, in part, but not all, right? But here you're seeing effectively, you know, pretty mass spread pricing pressure spreading to all consumers. Anything that has a real consumer twist to it, I mean, arguably speaking, is one that sort of is going to be sort of, we've seen a, a bigger shift towards on one hand. So that would be one. I think second one is clearly around energy um, and, of course, sort of the anti-correlation, anti-correlation of that, right, is one that remains sort of relatively frothy. Um, and then the third one I would say is, is actually anything around ESG and green. If you look at the amount of money that's being sort of put to work there, uh, both from a federal view as well as from corporate view, means that that is almost a trend that's a bit transient to all of this. I could jump in with one one comment on the regional, and it's it's not necessarily within a region, but it's on the cross border side. I mean, the landscape of where deals are happening is different. You know, two years ago, we had so much demand from China, obviously because of regulatory changes. That has completely dried up. There's been, obviously, there were um, on the tech side, there were a lot of hot companies that unfortunately had their tech team in Ukraine. So you're seeing, you know, a lot of the economic, you know, uh, you know, turmoil that's happening out there sort of have to it necessarily feeds into where some of this M and A activity is going to go or not go. Yeah, I agree, Joe. And I was going to say something similar. As we, you know, I I, I help lead M and A strategy and diligence and. I think companies are reevaluating their overall corporate strategy and then by implication their M&A strategy versus with some of these kind of geopolitical shifts and how it affects different markets. And it, it leads to potential shifts as they and also new dil, due diligence topics and much more deep diligence on the supply chain and the resiliency of the supply chain is something that wasn't something we did a lot of three or four years ago. And now we're doing it as one of the main topics for a diligence. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's now turn to the process of programmatic M&A. Patrick, we know that acquiring and integrating companies, many companies over an extended period of time can be difficult. So what do companies need to do to get really good at programmatic M&A? And how do the best companies actually build that muscle? Yeah, I'll start and then um, please uh, pile on. I think the short answer is, Sean, 
when you look at the amount of capital that flows through M and A, you know, over in 2021, over five trillion dollars, right? When you look at the research that Jeff took us through at the opening about, you know, kind of undisputedly how it creates excess value for those that are pursuing a programmatic strategy, it does, you know, taken to the extreme can be a head scratcher as to why don't companies have more developed M&A capabilities the same way that companies invest so heavily in innovation, R&D, commercial execution, even even your back office capabilities in finance, HR, et cetera. You rarely see the same amount of attention, management attention and investment in such a pivotal and important muscle. And so that's the reason that's the reason why, and that's what we spend a lot of time talking to clients about once they get kind of religion on, yes, I, I get it. I, I want to pursue a programmatic uh, M&A strategy. How do I get started? But it really, the short answer is you need to be, think about M&A holistically, starting with a link to strategy, having competence and being able to source targets and have a good reputation in the market know what you're doing in diligence, right? And how to run that process effectively. And then understanding for integration, the inputs that you took from strategy and diligence as to then how to structure your integration so that you're focused on maximizing value and minimizing risk. Yeah. And if maybe just a simple analogy uh, around programmatic, I mean, it is a bit, you know, as if you're exercising and trying to train for a sport. So the fact that doing it, doing more deals means that you will be better at doing your diligence, knowing how to engage your board, quickly understand the toll that they're expecting, you know, more quickly knowing, frankly, who to pull in from the organization to support on the integration, knowing what advices you should be working with or you shouldn't be working with and everything around that so there's just this it's just a little bit in the in the numbers game of, of being programmatic right that will help you sort of exercise that muscle and and uh, be able to do it more effectively over time and if i can just chime in because i think it's worth noting i mean when i was in my head strategy and corp dev roles we did have that sort of muscle but we also turned to outside third parties and so you know obviously in this context i think it's important to say that you don't need to have it all already Thank you. And Jeff, I think the research also shows that programmatic M&A helps companies become more resilient. Can you take us through how that works? Yeah, this is just very quickly. When we look at downturns, the programmatic companies, I think, Joanna, you used a word around, you know, not being fearful or having the confidence to do deals in spite of maybe market turbulence. And we see programmatic companies, you know, I mentioned they're 14% of acquirers in the global 2000. That on average is 28% of all deals are are made by programmatic companies. But during the downturn in, in the financial crisis, that, that they were roughly half of all deals. And so as others are fearful or lacking confidence because of all the other exogenous shocks, the best companies, the best acquirers are actually doubling down. And we find that really interesting. And so you say, so so do they perform? And they do perform. So not only during the downturn, but then again, if we fast forward this during COVID, we see outperformance during the downturn itself, but then this real acceleration during recovery and then the growth period. So they've used this period of uncertainty of turbulence to readjust their strategy, to readjust their portfolio, and then emerge relatively stronger. We call them resilient companies 
companies that have resilient not only outperformed during the downturn itself, but also during the recovery and growth period. And they're using kind of this through cycle programmatic M&A and portfolio approach to position themselves to, to sort of win as conditions improve. So the last comment though I'll say is a lot of company, a lot of times clients ask us, who, who do we admire on kind of a programmatic M&A philosophy? And I, I ask the question back to them, who do they admire as a company? And if you just sort of think of the companies that often get mentioned uh, as creating value over the long term, and all of those companies are good at M&A, all of them. And so we don't really see it as optional. The best companies are also the best at M&A. Let's talk about the how. Well, l let's do that. Uh, Patrick, why don't you take us through the framework for describing how outperforming companies are so good at M&A? Tell us more about that. So early in 2020, um, when the world was uh, shutting down around us, we stepped back to say, okay, looking back at the same data that that busy chart that I showed earlier, what companies were able to execute with their M&A strategies with a through, what we call the through cycle mindset? And what was com common attributes across those? And we came up with a, a framework that we think resonates. We call it the three C's. And so <clears throat> competitive advantage, conviction, and capacity in no particular order. Competitive advantage we think of is, is being able to quickly reassess how well your strategy holds up in light of all of those exogenous factors that are likely raining in on you that, you know, in this case, Tobias outlined, what's different about this moment and how does that impact our strategy? Therefore, how might it impact our M&A strategy? The answer might be not at all, by the way, uh, or it might, you know, be significant or somewhere in between. <laughs> On capacity, we think about this, of course, in terms of financial capacity, right? How much uh, dry powder does your does your company or organization uh, have and is ready to, to deploy? But we also think about it in terms of organizational organizational capacity. To the earlier question on what type of capabilities do I need to have? Well, do you have the capabilities in place really to be able to execute on a programmatic strategy? Is your organization already undergoing a lot of change? In this moment, we know lots of organizations are going through um, transformation type programs as they kind of uh, tight, tighten their belts for what might be coming. Do you also then have the ability to execute the, the organizational capacity to take on doing a deal or a series of deals? On conviction, I think it's as simple as saying if. <clears throat> We were to sit down as external advisors with each of one of your management team and each one of your board members and ask them, what is the M&A strategy for your organization? Would we get consistency across all of across each one of those conversations? Right. The point being is starting at the top, but then permeating down into the organization. Is it very clear as to how M&A is going to support the delivery of your strategy, right? And you need that level of clarity in order for then the organization to un be able to execute even at, you know, the, the mid and lower levels, right? The people that will actually be doing things like integration, things like the diligence, understanding how the pieces come together. 
Jeff, you often say that company leaders need to ask themselves, what do we see M&A as being critical to reaching our corporate objectives and see how much alignment they actually get in response? What does that often tell them? If you get alignment, but there's 10 different, 10 answers to our 10 places, that's probably too many. If you don't get alignment, then clearly you have some sharpening. And I'll, I'll just make a plea for Joanna's former job as a you know strategy or corporate development leader that without that specificity, it's really hard to do your job. You find a target, you, you may have cultivated that target for many years. You start to fall in love with the potential. You bring it to your executive team, you bring it to your board, and you don't debate the merits of the target. You debate the strategy and you get in this circular reference and you're not able to act fast enough or act with conviction and purpose, but it's not t- due to the target. It's, fa- it's due to the fact that you really don't have alignment or conviction among the top of the house. Yeah, Jeff, I couldn't agree more. I was very fortunate that I always wore both the strategy and corp dev hat. Well, for most of my my career prior to being a banker, and um, you know that meant that I was in charge of figuring out the strategy first, and then figuring out where the M and A was going to come. But in a lot of companies, those two roles can be very separate. They may even have a very different reporting structure: one to the CFO, one to the CEO. They still need to work very, very closely together. And there's there's one more, uh, you know chief officer of the company that I think should be involved in these conversations, and that's the investment relations officer. I think sometimes they are an afterthought. We've figured things out, and then we're going to figure out how we communicate it to the street. I think it's very important that you're in lockstep every step of the way so that you know the quarter before you're going to announce the acquisition, you're talking about your strategy to Wall Street in a way that's actually going to then resonate when you come out with this acquisition. And it's going to seem like a, you know, a sort of one, two step of a very, a very, uh, you know, very successful strategy. And, um, and then I also think the other piece that just can't be underestimated is the importance of that post-merger integration. You you get it, people get very excited about the deal, but the best companies really do a good job long before you're signing that purchase agreement of figuring out every step of that, of that post-merger acquisition. Sure. And thank you. And, and since the start of the pandemic, the way M&A dealmaking as well as integration was conducted during the lockdowns had to evolve significantly and rapidly as people moved to digital options. Now that the pandemic is largely behind us, what's the continued role of digital in M&A today now that hybrid and remote workplaces are seemingly here to stay? Tobias, do you want to take that? I, I, I can start us off and let's see, let's see where we take it. So I think our experience is that you know remote work uh, and hybrid work or the new normal, it works pretty well. You can do entire deals and you can do in- entire integrations on the back of that. And we've been running huge sort of integration kickoffs with sort of, you know, 50 or 100 team members from the integration office of either side meeting fully virtually when we're in lockdown mode, you know, going through the work streams, um, you know, presenting the charters, you know, setting up the drum beat and the cadence and everything around that. You know, is it as fun? Probably not, you know, are you kind of relying on some degree of sort of social goodwill that has been built up over time? Absolutely. Um, but the fact of the matter is that you can get a lot done in that remote setting. And then I think what I'm seeing from my clients now is that I think they're a lot more purposeful in terms of when they actually use the, the time and energy and, and, and money to, to, um, to actually uh, sort of travel and kind of make that more as a, 
as a something that's very special, right? And really a way to kind of set the tone and set the narrative and get teams to get to know each other. And then they say, look, we can do a lot of the tackling and blocking you know, in, in sort of a hybrid setting as well. So I definitely don't, don't think that it should hold us back at all. Um, but I, but, um, but I mean, uh, it, it, it is clearly something that, you know, I think many are embracing and, and frankly, also it's, it's a good way also to, and to, to work, work with companies and attract the right, right teams, also from a global, global perspective, right? Getting the right expertise online on short notice. Patrick, you came off mute. Do you want to add something? Thanks, Tobias. I was I agree with all of that. Looking at it from a slightly different angle, maybe to answer the question a different way, especially in 21, as valuations were at record highs, what was being underwritten was also fundamentally different than you know what we had seen in years earlier, meaning value was coming from places that maybe were not typically underwritten on the mostly on the top line. Right. And so the types of deals that were being done were were very often growth focused, different than maybe, you know, errors 10 years ago where you saw the larger, maybe cost focused merger, merger of of competitors. Right. Um, these were smaller, very programmatic often, and therefore the integration required a, a different approach, uh, one that was maybe less integration management focused or project management focused of the blocking and tackling and more what we were supporting clients on was kind of a series of strategy sprints really laser focused on delivering those growth drivers that were being underwritten in the deal and so it felt um, much more nimble at the center and the orchestration was really more of how do we sequence these series of strategy projects to then set the set the you know combined company on a path to deliver that top line growth thanks patrick and jeff in your experience how has the reason or rationale for a deal affected the way that integrations need to be carried out in certain sectors i do a lot of healthcare and biotech growth deals are the name of the game you see multi 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 billion dollar deals where cost synergies are not unimportant, but are not the reason for the deal, not even in the top three. And so, you know, it's not exactly the question asked, but creating an integration management office that is not an exercise in how do we put these two things together, but is instead an enablement office to enable that top line um, deal model, which, you know, which includes what is the special sauce in terms of the culture we just acquired? How do we preserve and enhance that? Who are the talented individuals that are critical to enabling this top line acceleration? What are um, what are some of the maybe integration imperatives that I need to be put putting together? But at the end of the day, what are the handful of kind of revenue synergy use cases that we we need to make sure uh, integration doesn't get in the way of, but in fact enables? It's a very different model than there's two boxes and they're going to become one box, um, and so. I think Tobias is right. The, there's an advantage, and you know, you can connect all around the world uh, with with in a in a in a maybe easier way than you ever could before, and that's amazing. Let's not discount purposeful in-person um, sprinting to kind of really build the bonds that are gonna uh, and relationships that are gonna actually need to endure to make it happen. Thanks. Um, business unit leaders are often under pressure 
to deliver on short-term performance. And that can also get in the way of taking a programmatic approach to M&A. How can companies encourage their BU heads, their leaders, to align on pursuing programmatic M&A? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. Um, and Joyda, you should weigh in from your experience, please, too. Um, the first is fundamentally, and it's I'll look at competitive advantage. What business areas or business lines need M&A? And which ones don't? So a little bit of orientation of, look, there's plenty of internal opportunities and we see a path to, to, to kind of achieving your goals with the current capabilities and current pipeline of opportunities that you have. So will we be reactively looking at targets and maybe proactively looking at a couple of interesting opportunities, but basically not focusing on M&A for your area? Then, that, then keep that, that sort of like orientation one versus, you know, um, hey, we actually seen your area as one of the two to three areas for which we believe M&A is critical. So first is like a foundational, where do you need M&A? And then once you establish that, I, we, we really do believe that the business unit leader can play an absolutely critical role in identifying interesting targets, cult, proactively cultivating those opportunities, and almost being a partner to the BD leader you know, in terms of not just searching, but also cultivating. Um, and, and, and honestly, we see, we see clients do things such as putting incentives in, in, in the targets of, uh, performance targets of, of those individuals so that if M&A is a meaningful part of their job, they're being compensated on helping to execute M&A well. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, I would say when we, when at Thompson Financial, one of the things we did was allow, business unit leaders to take some of their revenue that was non-organic into their targets. And that obviously has a huge impact on your excitement about M&A. But I also think it's allowing business unit leaders to see that they're growing their platform because it's very easy to be heads down and say, I'm fighting the competition. Well, you might not be fighting the competition. It might be better to acquire the competition and you need to totally change that attitude. Or I need to move into this adjacent market. But it might make so much more sense to be very outward looking and see who's doing well in that market. And so I think it's a mindset from the beginning that has to be in every strategic review, every meeting. What are we seeing out there? I and mean, if you're going to build this the best, no conversation about growth should be out there without adding on a discussion of, and what could we do with M&A? Could we do it faster? Could we do it better? Could we fill an important role that we have missing? because of this M&A. Some of the best executives at some of these companies that do programmatic M&A come up through these acquisitions. And so I think every discussion has to say, can M&A play a role in this? And I think the best companies do that. Thanks. And uh, Tobias, does it seem like companies are making predictive or forward-looking acquisitions that might indicate they're seeing a rebound from the recent economic challenges? Or are they more responding to the broader macro environment and simply adapting their M&A strategy with their broader corporate strategy? Well, I, I think it's a great question, first of all. Um, and I would say it's a bit of both. So I would say most of the corporates that I work with, they've kind of learned this lesson about, lesson about having a through cycle mentality. So a lot of deals they, they are doing is deals that they want to do fundamentally. And it, that's uh, irrespective of what's what state of state of play we're in now. So that means probably more your your for, former category then of the two, right? So they're really looking at you know this is forced of where they expect things to come out. So that that would be on the, on the, on the one hand. 
I do think on top of that, you do see opportunistic deals happen on top of that, right? But that's almost an addition, right? Where there is just, and I think Joanna, you referred to that earlier, right? You know, uh, corporates who are just trying to get a good deal or they're trying to help sort of, you know, in, in specifically distressed situations or, or very topical ones. But I would say that's an, that's an and, not an or. So I think fundamentally, I mean, companies are really, and we also see that in the resiliency research that Jeff presented earlier, you know, companies are kind of pulling many of the levers that, that we see work well, being programmatic, you know, being prudent on cost, thinking through sort of, you know, resource allocation, you know, looking at how do I improve margins, you know, doing all, all of those things in parallel, also in, in a downturn. Okay, this is our last question. To round out the podcast, we'd like you all to say how you're feeling about M&A activity in the face of continuing unsettled economic indicators. Interest rates are still rising, although inflation seems to be slowing. So Joanna, why don't, uh, why don't you kick us off? Sure. I think I'm excited about what your study shows, that we're actually going to have a strong M&A environment despite the downturn, and that's absolutely what we're seeing. And I think we're seeing a lot of excitement about what's going to happen in the second quarter. And I also think the pandemic brought us some efficiencies that has made doing M&A deals better that, that, um, that Tobias spoke to. So I think we're very, very excited about getting a lot of deals done in the near future that are benefiting that are going to help benefit companies in the long term. Thanks so much, Joanna. Tobias, you're next. Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, I'm excited about 2023 uh, and also more broadly, I think it's going to be a year where we're going to see dealmakers, you know, being more ambitious and also more aspirational. And I think, you know, if we look at the data, you know, you have to be more ambitious to some extent to get the deals done in the short term, but we know there's no lack of opportunities here, right? They're going to happen. And also just being sort of more creative in terms of how we structure things. But there's a lot that's going to come through, come through the woodwork over the coming six to nine months. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be exciting and it's going to be a fun, fun time to be in and around the space. Thanks, Tobias. Patrick, now over to you. Well, I'll make my capability building plug. Um, get, your, get your capacity in order. <clears throat> All right. we, uh, as you hear, we think that this is the year of the deal. So um, invest now. Well, maybe you have a little bit of capacity to get your your house in order to be able then really hit the ground running when you've got conviction across your management team, your board, um, and you can out, outpace your competition. Sounds great, Patrick. Thank you. And Jeff, now you get the last word. I love it. M&A creates value. It creates the best companies do it through cycle, including during a downturn. The best acquirers are the best companies and the best companies are the best acquirers. So two things that I, we would ask maybe that you could consider. One is that point mentioned, ask your leadership team, where should you focus your M&A efforts? See how much alignment you, you have. Once you get it, ask them how you're positioning yourself in the market to potential targets. Is it an attractive cultivation, proactive cultivation approach? Would you, are you, do you get excited about um, the, the, the way that you're positioning yourself. So those are two two ideas. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much, Jeff. Joanna, Tobias, Patrick, Jeff, thanks again for taking the time with us today. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, everybody. thanks for having us. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. 
We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback, and please do keep them coming. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of more than 160 previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, where you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes and access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com SCF that's for strategy and corporate finance, follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.